as we read God's word. We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And how are you? Good, we're in Romans chapter 2, and uh, beginning in verse 17, and uh, we're going to work our way through the end of chapter 2, and want to remind you one of the best ways you can help yourself in uh, keeping up with what we're doing in the book of Romans is if you have opportunity during the week is to read the, the chapter we're in, like this week it's chapter 2, but then also reading the chapter before and after, so reading chapter 1, 2, and 3, we kind of help capture the context of the passage this morning. Next week, we're starting in chapter 3, so maybe sometime this week, you can read Romans 2, 3, and 4. Probably take you 5 or 10 minutes, or if you read like me, take an hour. Because you read a little bit, fall asleep, then you wake up, oh, wait, I'm reading, and then you keep going. That's fine. Okay, Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Uh, Pat read it. Just want to point out a couple of words. Verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, that word rely, confidence, trust, um, a sense of uh, a firm foundation, a reliance. There it is. A little bit further on. Uh, you know his will. Uh, you are instructed from the law. Verse 19, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. So there's a sense here. We have a group of people who are relying on the law and they have a sense of confidence. And these are folks who are primarily seeking the Lord through religious obligation religious law code, and in that following of that religious law code, they have a sense of surety, a sense of confidence, a sense of reliance that everything's okay because they know what the code is, they know where uh, it's supposed to accomplish, and they have this sense of confidence. So the title of the message today is Confidence Lost, because we're going to look at religion and law code following as a means to knowing God and discover there's no confidence there. There is no uh, reliance that should be had there. There is no sense of uh, firm foundation there. It's an empty pursuit. So let's start this way. In business, 
there's something in certain segments of markets. It's called a business that is disruptive. Entrepreneurs who are starting a new business want to be a disruptor in a certain market. So the best example of this nowadays is a little company called Amazon. Uh, anybody heard of is, I don't know if I have to describe what the company is, but maybe you've heard of it. I'll just assume you have. If you haven't, you can Google it. If you haven't heard of Google, I can't help you. I, I mean, we're just, I got nothing for you. Okay, so Amazon started a million years ago as a, a bookseller. Do you remember back when Amazon sold books? And I mean, I know they sell books now, but they only sold like actual books, like you ordered a book. And I remember when I first heard of Amazon, they said, what do you, what, what's this Amazon? Is it a rainforest? No, no, no. It's a website you go to and you buy books and they mail them to you. And what did we all say at the time? Why in the world would you order a book from a website when I can drive right down the street to Barnes & Noble or Borders and buy a book right there? You remember saying this? No, all you and oh, I didn't say that. I knew it was going to be incredible. So how much stock did you buy? Right, zero. So we heard, okay, and then all of a sudden nowadays, what do we say? Why in the world would you drive down the street to Barnes & Noble and buy a book when sitting here in church you can order it on your phone and it might be at your house before you get home, right? <laughs> Why? And so they disrupted something that we thought would never change. You want a book? You go to a bookstore, you go to the library. They came up with a new idea and now you say, Wait, why would anybody do it the old way? And what Paul is saying here is many people are trying to approach God through law code following, an obligation of rules, seeking to curry favor with God through obedience and to impress the people around them. And the gospel disrupts that completely and makes it completely obsolete. So the gospel here comes in and disrupts a way of the, an effort to know God through law code following or religious obligation. Now, let me, our illustration breaks down here. Amazon and many other uh, e-commerce kind of companies, the reason they were disruptive is they were innovative. They came up with something new. The gospel is not innovative. The gospel is not new. The gospel has always been the way. Remember, the gospel was there in Genesis chapter 3 when God said to the woman, your seed, he will crush his head but he will strike his heel, right? The gospel was there when Abraham took Isaac up onto the mountain to sacrifice him, and Isaac innocently asked, so, Dad, where's the animal for the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say in response? God himself will provide the lamb. Did he? Yes. Read Revelation chapter 5. There was one on the throne looking like a lamb who was slain, right? The gospel was there when Joseph was confronted uh, by his brothers and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And later on, his brothers meet with him again. And Joseph says, what you meant from harm, for harm, God meant for good. There was the gospel again. The gospel was there when Moses, uh, taking the people out of, the, out of Egypt by the power of God, told the people, take the blood of the lamb, put it on your doorpost. Then the angel of death will pass over. There's the gospel again. Gospel was there again when Moses telling his people just before his death, another prophet is going to come like me, but he's way, way better. Remember that? The gospel was there all the way through, over and over and over again. And then Jesus comes and fulfills the law, dies on the cross, and we have good news. So the gospel is not innovative. The gospel and the work of Jesus wasn't God who tried to plan and went, oh man, that didn't work. Uh, what are we going to do? How about gospel? That wasn't, the gospel has always been the plan and it is the plan that has always been unfolding and is unfolding now. It's just some 
As God is telling the good news that he redeems sinners in the midst of that decided, well, that's good, but I think maybe I can know God by obedience and rule following and law code following and religion. And Paul is going to come at them and say, no, you should have no confidence in your religion. Your confidence should be lost on religion. In fact, we're going to see here in verses 17 through 24, talk is cheap. So Paul, let's start here in verse 17. Uh, If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God, and in fact, maybe you know his will, approve what is excellent because you've been instructed with the law, he says, verse 19, if you're sure that you are a, a guide to the blind, a light in the dark, an instructor to the foolish, something to pay attention to here in that passage. These are all things that first century rabbis said was their job in relationship to Gentiles. So this is, Paul is just pulling from first century rabbinical writings and saying, I know you say as as Jewish leaders, your job in relationship with the Gentiles is to be a teacher, a guide, a light. If all of these things are true of you, then I have a couple of questions. Why are you failing so miserably in actually knowing God? What is going on and why is this happening? A mom and his son, uh, they lived in Appalachia, which is that way. I've never been there, but this was an interesting story. So they're going to go on a hike on these Appalachian trails that are near their home, and they know the trails really well. In fact, the reason they know the trails really well is they had a, a family member, a grandfather, who would take them hiking on these trails all the time. So they knew these trails a lot. They had hiked in this trail system hundreds of times. Now, it's a very complex trail system, a lot of crisscross paths and creeks running through, and then when weather would come through, there might be washouts and trees, and so you're always trying to have to figure out what changed since last spring, that sort of thing. And the reason they were hiking on this particular day is this grandfather had passed away, and the weather was nice out, and they said, you know what would be a great way to remember uh, Grandpa is to go hiking the trails that we hiked with him. And so they went out hiking, and they're hiking the trails, and they're starting to get feel a little bit uneasy like, well, it looks familiar, but we're not sure if we're exactly certain where we are. And, and what they said to themselves several times is, we've hiked these trails hundreds of times. Of course we know where we are. We know everything there is to know about these trails. So they kept going, they kept going pretty soon. They finally came to the realization, hours and hours later, we don't know where we are. We know we are here, we just don't know where here is. And so they're undoing. Now, just so you know, they, they're fine. A lot of people who get lost in the Appalachian Trails aren't fine. These uh, folks were found by search and rescue. Uh, once they were being, had been gone for a certain period of time, they were found. But instead of having a three-hour hike into the, into the Appalachian Trails, they had a, a, a very lengthy time out in the woods, and it didn't have to be that way. What's interesting about this is what was the primary reason they got as lost as they did? They were convinced they knew, were knew, they knew what they were doing. In fact, when they retraced their steps with search and rescue, they discovered they had made a wrong turn near the beginning of their day. And they had spent their day trying to fit what they were seeing into what they knew. Now, this looks familiar. It's sort of, and it wasn't until they were completely lost that they realized their knowledge was useless. They finally had to admit they had no idea uh, where they were. And this is what Paul is saying, is you're trying to pursue God through religious obligation, law code following, rule following, and there's a sense it feels like it's taking me a certain place. What you don't understand is you don't know what you don't know. 
law following and rule following will not get you to God like you think it will get you to God. And he, he, he gives us a couple of primary reasons why. Look at verse 20. If you teach children and you have all this knowledge of truth, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? Look what he points out. When you preach against stealing, do you steal? That's a, it's a rhetorical question he's asking them. Now, since you teach against stealing, do you steal? He doesn't even make an effort to prove to them that they do steal or don't steal because everybody knows that religious people aren't any better than anybody else. It's, everybody knows this. And, he, and he, it's a rhetorical question because he knows it's true and he knows they have to admit it, that you teach against all kinds of moralism, but at the end of the day, you're breaking the rules yourself. In fact, that's why many people are very religious, because they're breaking the rules and they're trying to make up the difference. And he's saying, listen, if you teach others not to steal, do you steal? Uh, those of you who, who teach others not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And he says, how is your religion helping you to live life with less disobedience? And the answer is, now, of course, a religious person in church would never say this, but they will at home when they're by themselves. Is it helping you live less... Uh, but with less sin in your life? And the answer is no, it's not. It's not helping. The law does not make us do less sin. All the law does is show us the sin we have in us. He says their disobedience then has actually ruined the reputation of God in the eyes of the Gentiles. Look what it says in verse 24. It is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here's you have these religious people and they say, we're amazing, we're awesome sauce, we know all the rules, and we'll tell you all the rules, and we'll tell you how you're terrible at following the rules. And then the Gentiles see how these religious people live, and they're not merely offended at the religious people in their hypocrisy, they blaspheme God, because they assume that God must be like these guys. And so if God is like these guys, I don't have any time for it. And so these religionists, it says, are leading the Gentiles instead of to relationship with God. They're leading Gentiles to blaspheme against God because they're having confidence in their religious obligation, but talk is cheap. Talk doesn't do anything. Teaching and teaching and teaching, it's all, uh, uh, and, and not having your life changed just results in people blaspheming against God. So what's the rule of the law then, we might ask? It, are there rules? Have you read the Bible? Is there a rule in there or two or a hundred? Yeah, so what's the job? What are those in there for? Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to look at a couple of verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at what Jesus has to say. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus says this. Don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Did Jesus come to abolish the law or the prophets? No. Okay, good. You're, you're awake. I like it. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus' goal here is not to get rid of the law. His goal here is to fulfill it. If you go out to dinner, can you do that? Maybe you eat outside or you get takeout or you eat out on those cool things next to uh, the street. Now they have in parking spaces where we used to park. Now people eat out there. Fun thing, as you're driving by, just honk your horn. Uh, no, don't do that. It's terrible. So you get to the end of the meal... The, the server will bring you a slip of paper, right? And if you're eating with friends, everybody looks away. You're like, you excuse yourself to go to the restroom. I mean, there's lots of techniques. 
So what we have is we have law on the table. There's a law. The slip of paper says, having participated in this meal, there is a cost. And the cost is indicated on the slip of paper. And somebody needs to hand a form of payment in order to do what? Fulfill the law. So once it is fulfilled, does that law have any more obligation on your life? No. Once you have paid that, the restaurant can't call you the next day and ask for more money because it's fulfilled. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to fulfill it so it can have no more claim. So Jesus lives his life in perfect obedience to the Father, in perfect obedience to the law, and the law is completely fulfilled by Christ. He fulfilled the entirety of the law, is what Jesus is saying. And so then we say, well, I want a piece of that action. How do I participate with Christ in fulfilling the law? And the Bible says, by faith. When we trust Christ, we are in Christ. The Bible even says we are crucified with Christ. So by putting our faith in Christ, we are joined with Christ on the cross and are crucified. So we have fulfilled the law with Christ, and we have died with Christ on the cross. So therefore, does the law apply to us? No, the law does not apply to dead people. At your funeral, they cannot give you a speeding ticket. You're dead. The law only applies to living people, and if you have died, the law no longer applies. And this is the argument Paul's going to be making in, in future editions of the book of Romans. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks, maybe a month. His argument is, the law doesn't apply to me any longer. Why? I'm a dead guy. I have died with Christ, so the law doesn't have any rules on me. And worship, another thing, what is the worst thing the law can do to you? It kills you. If you're already dead, is that a problem? It's not. If you are dead and somebody threatens to kill you, that's not a problem. You say, well, that's strange, but the problem is I'm still dead. No, having died to sin, he was raised. And the Bible tells us our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Having died to the law, we are raised in Christ, and the law no longer applies because to the law we are dead. So Jesus fulfills the law dies, we die with him, and so the law, the law no longer has any hold on us because we have died with Christ. So Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. The law isn't evil. The law, in fact, is an expression of God's holiness and his love and his grace and his mercy. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Matthew 7, 7. I think I meant uh, 12. Did I say seven? Did you hear seven? Yeah, you, you heard me wrong. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. What do we call that? That's the golden rule, I think. Is that what we call that? Do unto others, you would have them do unto you. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire Thus you will recognize them by their 
fruits. Jesus says, the law is fulfilled, is expressed in serving others the way we would prefer to be served. And how do we know if the law is in our hearts by new life in Christ, by our fruit? If you have a tree in your backyard and you go out back and you take a bag of apples that you bought at Safeway and you attach those tree those apples to your tree, has that tree become an apple tree? No, it has not. It has become an apple storage device, not a very good one, but it has not turned into an apple tree. How do you know if a tree is an apple tree? If apples come off it, if an apples come off it and it doesn't need, the apple tree does not need to have somebody artificially attach apples to it. And this is the, the very simple argument Jesus is making here. Has my heart been changed by the power of the gospel? Then fruit will flow out of it. Law code following is different. Law code following says, if I do good, my heart will be changed. I need to do a certain number of good things so that my heart can be changed. And Jesus is turning that upside down and saying, first of all, law code following can't do that. Secondly, fruitfulness does not flow from obligation to the law. Fruitfulness flows from a heart that has been changed by the power of the gospel. That is Jesus fulfilling the law and giving us life, which gives us fruitfulness. So just because the law doesn't apply to us doesn't mean I'll get to do whatever I want. What it says is my heart is changed so that fruitfulness becomes how my life is operating. So what is the law for? Is that a fair question? If the law doesn't do anything but kill us and it no longer applies, what is the law for? I'm glad you asked. You're saying, I didn't ask. You're long for the ride now. Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20. It'll be up on the screen or you can find it in your copy of the scripture. Here's what it says. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. How many people will be made righteous in God's sight by the works of the law? Zero. Good. Absolutely no one. No one is going to follow the law good enough to be justified in God's sight, to be made righteous. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What is the law for? To give us knowledge of sin. You fall down, maybe you pull a Dak Prescott, sorry. They're going to take, they're going to take you in and they're going to give you an x-ray. That you fall down, twist your leggy thingy, right? And they do an x-ray and they say, your leg is broken. Has anybody, after the x-ray was done, said, you know what, I feel a lot better. I'm good to go. No, the x-ray doesn't fix anything, does it? It doesn't. I've had a, an x-ray or three, and I've never had an x-ray fix it. What does the x-ray do? It just tells me what's wrong. That's its whole job, is to tell me what's wrong, and then the doctor will say, here's how much it's going to cost to make it. No, he doesn't say that. Here's what it's going to take to make it right. But the x-ray is the diagnostic tool, and what we're seeing here, the law is an expression of God, and it is designed to reveal the reality of our situation. The law reveals a knowledge of sin. Look what it says in, in Romans uh, chapter uh, 7. Romans 7, this time I am in verse 7. What shall we say? Is the law sin? Is the law evil if it reveals sin? The answer is no. The law is in fact righteous, an expression of who God is by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet, covet 
If the law had said, you shall not covet. I was having a conversation with a young person the other day. They said, this is how it works. You know, we've got school, there's rules in school. I never think about things I want to do wrong until all of a sudden they put up on the screen a rule. Don't do this. Well, now that's all I want to do. Now that you've made it, if you wouldn't have mentioned it, I wouldn't have even thought of it. But now that you put the rule up there, that sounds like, that's a great idea. And that's how the law works. The law says, uh, you shall not covet. And what does our heart do? Well, I like that guy's house. I like that guy's boat. I like that guy's wife. I like that guy's donkey. Or whatever it might be. We, all of a sudden, okay, I got nothing but covet. So the law reveals in us our sin. And in fact, in some ways, inflames it, generates it. And what's our response to be? Look down at verse 14. The law shines into our heart. Verse 24, I should say, is our response. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, this is what the law brings us to. The law shines a light into our heart. We look into our heart and we go, oh man, I, I did not see that. I, I thought I was like, not great, but not terrible. And the law shines a, a light into my heart and I, I respond this way. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Verse 25 Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that he fulfilled the law for me. I can die with him by faith, and the law has no application on me. I'm not wretched anymore. I have been made righteous. Confidence in law is lost in religion. Talk is cheap. Rule-making is cheap. Rule-following is cheap. It doesn't do anything. What needs to happen? We need a new heart. And we need the law to no longer apply to us. And that's precisely what Jesus did for us. He took the law to the cross, died to it, and we can die with him. And the law no longer uh, applies. Um, Brothers sometimes get in trouble. Older brother, younger brother. Sometimes brothers will get each other in trouble. If you're a brother or have a brother or wish you had a brother, brothers get each other in trouble. Does this happen? Is it just me? Well, now I'm going to feel awkward if it's just me. So what happens? Two brothers go out, older brother and younger brother, they get into trouble. Nothing terrible. Nobody dies, but something of the neighbor's is broken. His favored garden garden gnome no longer has his little ceramic hat, whatever it might be. And they come home, and the mom is very upset because now she's got to write money for a garden gnome, and she's going to have to sit there and hear the whole story about that garden gnome was given to me by my great uncle the day he died. And, okay, can I go to Walmart and buy the garden gnome? Yes, okay. And so she says to the brothers, the little brother, she said, what were you thinking? What does he say? And she turns to the older brother, and what does he say? You know, we were just having a good time. And the mom says this, you should have known better. You, you're the older brother, you should have known better. And here's the thing we need to recognize as religious people, and that's going to bother you. You're going to say, well, I'm not a religious person. Did you show up on a Sunday morning in church? That makes you kind of religious. And that's fine. What we need to recognize is since we have the Word of God, since we have God's Spirit, we should know better and step off a little bit of our expectation that all the people around us can follow our unspoken set of rules of how Christians ought to. To live. We're going to come into a place like this and say the gospel is the means to relationship with God. Then at some point we have to confront our own sense of religious obligation. I have expectations. Good Christians don't drink. Good Christians don't drink cheap beer. Good Christians only drink 
Craft beer. I don't know what it is for you. Good Christians don't. Buy, go to the store on Sundays. Is that a thing anymore? I don't even know. Good Christians don't go to these kind of movies. Good Christians don't go to those kind of restaurants. Good Christians don't talk this way. Okay, I'm going to say it. Good Christians don't vote that way. And we have a list of rules of what good Christians do and good Christians don't. Somehow along the lines, we figured out that the Old Testament law code doesn't apply to people. And we decided, let's make our own. Good Christians are Republican. Good Christians uh, don't ever get divorced. Good Christians have kids who never disobey. Have you heard that one? Yeah, no, yeah, if you're a good Christian, your kid, of course, is never going to disobey, and they're going to sit reading their Bible, and when they're not reading their Bible, they're doing chores you didn't ask them to do. Right? And then, and then people come over, and this is why we don't have, you know, people don't have friends, because you don't want them to see that your kids, because your kids may disobey, and they may judge you based on their list of how kids are supposed to act for good Christian parents. Why are we doing this? Let's get off our high horse. There is no law code for us. We should be a community of grace, where grace is the law. We've got to keep going. I want to be done by two. I think the Seahawks have a bye, so I'm good. Um, I, can, I can talk all day. All right, let's look at the next section, Romans chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 25. Confidence lost in religion, outsiders are now... Insiders, confidence lost. Outsiders are now insiders. We all like exclusive clubs, and it's okay to like exclusive clubs. I'm not judging you. You go to a particular show and you buy tickets, and you decide to ante up and buy the tickets that get you into the front row, or buy the tickets that get you the backstage pass, and you can meet the performers, or you can buy the tickets and you get uh, extra, excuse me, food and beverage service. And so uh, there's a velvet rope, and you've got that ticket that gets you to the extra special place. That's kind of fun. Right? All the other people are in the way back. They can't even see the stage. And you're sitting right there. And you've got to wear a poncho so you don't get wet or whatever it might be. So we like this idea of exclusive clubs. There's a line to get in. And, and there's VIPs. And there's important people. And, and that's okay to some degree. But here's the thing. These religious teachers, these religious leaders have decided in the context of the people of God, there are insiders and there are outsiders. And we have to look for those who are the insiders and look for the, those who are the outsiders by, t- by particular marks that establish whether or not you're the in crowd or the outside crowd. It's very exclusive. And the, and the mark that he's talking about here in Romans chapter 2 is circumcision. He says this, circumcision is of value if you obey the law. If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So what is circumcision? Circumcision was a physical act, a a surgical procedure that was done on babies when they were eight days old. And it was a part of understanding yourself as reconciled and reckoned to the people of God. So all males in Israel were circumcised on the eighth day as a mark to indicate they were of the people of God. When was circumcision given? It was given back in Genesis 2 a guy named Abraham. Who was the first child that was circumcised? Is Bible trivia time. Ishmael. Why was Isaac not the first one circumcised? He wasn't born yet. Wait, what? What's Ishmael doing getting circumcised first? 
I thought being circumcised made you a part of the people of God. No, look at your verse in verse 25. If circumcision had value, why does it fall apart if you disobey the law? If you obey the law, and, or, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Abraham received circumcision as a mark saying he had the covenant promises of God. God made a covenant promise to Abraham. Your children will be more than the sands on the seashore, more than the stars of the sky. Having received the covenant promises of God, he was given a mark to indicate he was in the covenant promises of God. It wasn't the reverse, which is what the religious people are trying to do. You get circumcised to participate in the covenant promises of God, and that was never the plan. The plan was circumcision recognizing a covenant promise that already exists. The circumcision itself does nothing. What matters? What matters is what's going on in the heart. Look at the end of this passage, verse 29. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. How can Paul change the rules now? I thought the circumcision was of the body, not of the heart. How can Paul change the rules to say, no, 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 circumcision is of the heart having to do with the covenant promises of God? Well, let's look. Paul didn't change the rules. Look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it, verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He's saying this. You have the covenant promises of God, not because you chose God, but because God chose you. Don't merely have your body circumcised. Your heart needs to be marked with God in your heart and soul that a heart level love and devotion to God, not merely an outward expression of a religious duty. Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. In this particular passage, he's talking about if you disobey God, he's going to scatter you all over the world. And then what happens if they return to God? Verse 4, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will, Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The issue here is not merely law code following. God says get circumcised on the eighth day. The issue is having received the covenant promises of God, is my heart set on God or not? And he's saying... You can be circumcised all day long, and if your heart is not set on the Lord, you are not following the Lord or in a covenant relationship with him. Last verse in this section, Jeremiah chapter 4, 
verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. Verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. So what these religious leaders were doing is they were coming into the people in Rome and saying, you have to get circumcised. Good Christians get circumcised because good Christians understand that Christianity came from the Jewish people and the Jewish people got circumcised. And Paul is saying, it doesn't matter. What matters is what's going on in your heart. Is your heart set on the Lord or not? You can couple them up with a list of rules, 10 pages long, and you can follow them all day long. And if your heart is not set on the Lord, then you've missed the boat. It's a heart issue, not a merely outside issue. And in the, in the Jewish, among the Jewish people, to not be circumcised puts you on the outside. But in the gospel, what, go, what is going on with our heart determines are we out or in, not whether or not we can follow an artificial law code. Are our heart, is our hearts, are our hearts, that's a hard one. Is our heart set on the Lord by his grace? then there's no need for outward, uh, mere symbols of devotion. One last verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Philippians 1, verse 9. Let me read it for you. I think it's up on the screen. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we're back to fruitfulness. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So instead of merely looking for outward expressions of religious devotion, we want our heart, by the power of the Spirit, set aside unto Christ so that fruitfulness can flow through us and from us because Christ has fulfilled the law for us. It is his prayer that our love will abound, that there will be a spiritual transformation of our hearts, that we will not merely do good deeds to try and be good, but our hearts will be changed, and so our fruitfulness will be evident to the Lord and those around us. We don't just merely try and act good. Our heart is changed to be good. When I was a kid, I didn't like broccoli. Like I would eat it, and it would make me gag. And some of you are saying, yeah, that's... That's how I feel still today. But today, now I don't mind it. So my mom, though, would make me eat my vegetables. Any other mom abuse you in such a way? Eat, you're going to eat your vegetables. And I would have to eat my vegetables. And I would gag them down, drink six gallons of water to try and wash them down. I'm gagging the whole time. Lots of drama. I still had to eat them. Things were different back then. Do you think it would have been fair if my mom said, listen, I want you to eat your broccoli. Fine, fine, okay. Get myself psyched. But I want you to like it. Would that be fair? No, no, I don't want you to just eat it. I think I'm tired of the fight. I want you to enjoy the eating. And I, what would I say to my mom? I can't, what am I supposed to do? Change what my taste buds are telling my brain? I'm eating poison? That's what my taste buds are telling me. I can't change my taste buds. I can't change what's happening physiologically. I'm going to eat them. So what needs to happen? I don't know. At some point, something changed because I don't have my broccoli so much. You put half a cup, two cups of nacho cheese on them? It's fine. I got no problem with that. 
So something changed. This is what's happening. So many of us as Christians are approaching our Christian life. Bear down, get after it. At some point, I'll like it. And we, at some point, we missed it. Because that's, that's backwards. What's to happen is we're to seek the Lord by faith and prayer and say, Lord, something is wrong with me. All my appetites are going over here and none of my appetites are going where you want them. Something needs to change in me. What's the fancy word for, for that when we say something needs to change in me? It's called repentance. We say, I want to go here, but I know that's not good. God, would you change my heart that I might go over here? Well, how do I know if he's going to do it or not? That's called faith. And the Christian life is a life of faith. We wake up every morning and say, my appetites haven't changed again. Let's try faith again. If you want to try discipline and rigor and scheduling and accountability, give that a shot too. In fact, I would recommend it. Leave out the faith. None of those things work. Because at some point, your heart has to be changed. The only way for your heart to be changed is by the Holy Spirit getting in there by faith and rewiring you. And that takes time, and it takes prayer, and it takes faith. So our hope is, look at the last verse of Romans chapter <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, and we're going to end with this. Our hope is this. A Jew is not one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And how do we look at that? Here's, here's when you can look at that. I'll give you a, a, one of the most a religious times in your life, one of the most spiritual times in your life. You ready? It's that time between when the light goes out and your head hits the pillow and you go to sleep. Because nobody is in that head with you, are they? And you're left with what happened that day. You're left with regret. You're left with maybe guilt, shame. I don't know. And it's just you and your thoughts and the Lord. And in that moment, you can't good, your, good deed your way out of it, can you? Nobody's impressed because nobody's there with you. The only person left in that quiet moment is you and your thoughts and the Lord. And the question, in that moment, how am I justified? And in that moment of quietness and solitude, and this is why most of us as Americans don't like solitude, because we don't want to get left with those. But in that moment, where am I going to find comfort that I'm okay with God and God's okay with me? If it's law code following, that moment will never be peaceful. But if it's the grace of Christ crucified on the cross, fulfilling the law for you, in that moment, we say, Jesus, thank you for your grace again today. Can you believe what I did? And Jesus said, yeah, I can. We're going to work on that, but you're okay. You're okay. His praise is not for man but from God, and not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did for you. What do I do with my heart? Jesus knows, and he saves us by his sacrifice and by his power.